You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and I use she, her pronouns. Today, I'm joined by Katja Dreyer-Oren, who uses she, her pronouns. Katja is a second career programmer, coming to it after several years as a jazz musician. With a technical background, primarily in health and tech startups, she currently works on the web services team at Heroku. She still performs jazz intermittently around the Boston area. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We are excited to talk to you. The first question that I have is, what was your instrument? Everyone always asks this. So I'm primarily a jazz singer. I suppose that is what's on my diploma, but I really prefer to arrange and occasionally compose. Awesome. So you're like hands in everything then, right? Like a jazz writer almost, right? <laughs> you, you could say that, but that would be generous these days. My husband is still a full-time jazz musician. Nicholas Brest, he has two albums out and they're both great. Awesome. We will link to that in the show notes. So I was at a RubyConf in San Diego a couple of weeks ago. You gave a workshop on ethics in software development. This was a workshop that was sort of an extension of a talk that you had given a couple times at conferences. Can you talk about what inspired you to talk about this topic? A couple things. I was a failed philosophy major in college. I had what my advisor called the largest philosophy minor. And was I and was I sure I didn't want to just finish the major, Katya, because it's only a couple more classes. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. And I say this with great respect for the field of philosophy and for people who can handle this, but it was so abstract. There were questions like, if a man is at the top of a hill and he has both a heart attack while he is struck by lightning, what killed him? And there's absolutely a part of me that's like, the man's dead. There was no foul play. Does it matter what killed him? I'm not a coroner. I don't know what made his heart stop. And so at a certain point, I just got so fed up if like philosophers were having these really important conversations, but about really meaningless things. And it just drove me up the wall. And so I quit with a gigantic minor and still retained that love of philosophy and the love of the way that philosophers think about things, think deeply, look at all of the edges of a problem. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like being a programmer. But with the focus on how can we take all of this deep thought and put it into something practical that we can do? In fact, the thing that made me really give up my philosophy major was when I took a biomedical ethics course in school. And I was like, oh, this is something that I can use. This is actual information that could affect human person's life. And that was the thing that made me realize like, oh, I cannot go back to this ultra abstract philosophy nonsense. It's not really nonsense. It just felt like nonsense to me. I really do have a lot of respect for philosophy. Obviously, this was a long time ago. I was a musician for a while, and then I started in tech. And all of this type of deep thinking came back to me in a really different way. And I realized that as technologists, we were in the position to deeply affect people's lives. And no one was really talking about that. Ethics is a conversation that designers have a lot. It's sometimes a conversation that product people have, but it's not really a conversation that most software engineers have. And it's certainly not a conversation that you have at work, typically. And I had a moment, I brought it up in the workshop at RubyConf this year, of being a baby dev. And I was working at a company that connected people with relevant social services. 
we would assess your, we call them health-related social needs, food insecurity, housing insecurity, that sort of thing. And then based on those needs, based on your location, we would find resources for you to utilize to handle those needs. This felt very ethical to me. It felt like a good thing, capital G, capital T, to do for the world. And then we started working with a bunch of health systems on a government grant. And basically the grant would pay for health systems to address people's social needs in this way. And we're like, cool, the government should be paying for this stuff. This seems like a great thing. So basically the government was studying the efficacy of this. Does addressing someone's social needs reduce their, and let's be honest about what it is, their cost to the health system? If someone does not have food insecurity, are they going to end up in the ER less frequently? Stuff like that. So, okay, I can do something a little gross if the goal is a good one. The thing was, because it was a study, the government only paid for people who fell into the three following categories. So the people whose needs were addressed had to A, have an address, B, they had to have been to the ER more than once in the past year, and C, they had to be a Medicare or Medicaid recipient. Are there people listening to this outside of the U.S.? Uh, yes, we do have people yes. listening outside okay. the U.S. So to clarify, for those outside the U.S., Medicare and Medicaid are government health programs that basically provide health insurance for the elderly and for people under certain income and asset levels. At one point, I had a customer ask me, Hey, Katya, can you make it so that I can only refer people who fall into these categories to resources? I don't want to even bother referring people who are not in these categories to resources because we don't get grant money for them. And I'm okay. sitting there like baby <laughs> dev, who the heck am I to make decisions like this? And I'm kind of like, well, sure, from a technical standpoint, I can do that, but I don't really feel good about that. I mean, there are a lot of really deserving people who don't have an address and don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid. Medicaid specifically has a lot of really stringent requirements. Like if you have more than $2,000 in assets, you often don't qualify, which means if your car is worth 2,500 bucks, you often can't qualify for Medicaid. This is a huge barrier to accessing it and certainly does not seem like we should be blocking people from receiving resources. And so I kind of said to this customer, I could do this, but I'm not going to. And I didn't really have the words to say why this felt so yucky other than that I knew that there were people who were deserving of resources and help who did not fall into these categories the government had assigned. And I kind of brought it up to my dev team and I was like, whoa, this feels kind of gross that they're even asking this, right? Like, isn't their mm -hmm. goal to provide services to folks? And everyone around me is, oh, yeah, that, that is kind of gross. But no one else had thought to say anything. No one else had thought to push back on this from like an ethical perspective. And I certainly don't mean to say like, ooh, I'm the most ethical person in the world. But it was just not like a conversation that anyone was having. And that was sort of my first inkling of, oh, engineers do make decisions that have really serious implications. And often there isn't a product person or a designer around who is there to provide the goal framework or any sort of consideration therein. That sort of led me down this path of what power do we as software engineers have when we are building things? And what responsibilities do we have to know the impact of what we're building? Yeah, I think this is a very interesting topic because part of what you said about like we are in a position to affect great change 
I think that that was a big part, at least for me, I was like, oh, this is a way to improve people's lives. Like technology can really dramatically improve the quality of life for a lot of people. But we sort of don't think about it in our day to day. And it's kind of curious what your thoughts are on like, what are some of the ethical considerations we should be thinking about when we're at work? Gosh. So can I kind of bring up the framework that I've put in this talk and this workshop? Mm -hmm. Because I think that the reason that I developed this framework was to exactly answer this question, because it can feel really abstract as an engineer, you know, bringing it back to this philosophy abstraction, you just get a JIRA ticket with instructions on what to build and you just build it. And so it can often feel like there isn't really space for this type of thinking, but there is always space. And if there isn't, there ought to be. So things that we should be thinking about at work. What I did in my talk and when I try to train people in practical ethical thinking, basically, I like to have people assess the full, I call it the user stack, but the full set of user groups who are going to be impacted by a particular feature or project. And as engineers, we often think about end users when we are building stuff, you know, the people who actually interact with our software. But what I think of as the user stack extends far beyond that. So there can be internal users who are going to be affected. So for example, support staff, Are you building a feature that is going to require a lot of back and forth with support staff? Do they have the bandwidth to handle that? They are going to be probably salespeople who have to sell your stuff. Is it actually worth selling? Is it worth customers' money to buy it? Obviously, customers and end users are often the same, but not always. I work for Heroku, owned by Salesforce, which often the person purchasing the Salesforce instance or Heroku instance is not the person who's going to be running it or managing or using it. And so you kind of have to think about those user groups separately as well. And ultimately, there are going to be people who never touch your software who are going to be impacted by it. And so in the example I gave at this health tech startup, The people who were being referred to organizations to help with their health-related social needs, they never actually touched our software. They would get screened by someone at their clinic and they would be given a piece of printout with information and never have to touch our software at all. But they were the ones being most affected by our technical decisions. And those are the people I really think that software engineers need to consider most, is the people who have no choice in the matter, but whose lives may be in small or large ways deeply affected by your choices, our choices as engineers. And my argument is we have a software development process. I know we do at Heroku. We've had a process everywhere I've ever worked. And this sort of thinking is something that we can weave into our development processes. Whenever we're building things, we look at performance considerations, security considerations, privacy considerations. There's no reason that ethical considerations cannot be part of that as well. In this workshop, you also kind of talk about different sort of philosophical frameworks, right? So you mention different sort of theories of ethics and moral philosophy. You mention agent-centered ethics, you mention consequentialism, utilitarianism, and then you sort of settled on one that you prefer called contractualism. Can you give a little bit of an explanation of the other options and then kind of explain what contractualism is? Yeah. Contractualism is great. And if you've ever seen my favorite show, NBC's The Good Place, then you already know what contractualism is. So just to back up, ethical theories tend to fall into three large buckets, agent-centered ethics, consequentialism, and non-consequentialism. So agent-centered ethics is basically concerned with the ethical status of individuals rather than the morality of particular actions. So you kind of think about a good person versus a bad person. 
And the flaw is that this allows a good person to do a bad thing while retaining their good signifier. And I think that that, I don't know, I don't really care if someone thinks of themselves or is called a good person if they go off and do bad things. Consequentialism focuses on the outcomes of particular actions. Utilitarianism is kind of the biggest consequentialist ethical theory where it looks at the overall outcome of a set of actions. And this is sort of the all's well that ends well vibe, which my flaw with that is that it allows people to do really bad things if the outcome is a net positive. Finally, non-consequentialism is focused on the intentions of people making ethical decisions. The flaw there is you can have great intentions, but if the outcomes are bad, then intentions, I'm sure there's some pithy saying here that I can't think of, but yeah, intentions only go so far if the outcomes are negative. So contractualism, the reason I like it is because it kind of blends the best parts of all three while getting rid of some of the negatives. The way people usually describe contractualism is imagine a group of reasonable people, asterisk next to reasonable, are forming a new society and they are coming up with rules for their new society. So anyone can make up a rule and then anyone else can veto that rule on principle. So the popular example here is, let's say I make up a rule that says, well, anyone should be able to ignore their promises when it's convenient to them. Someone else could veto that rule saying, well, that's not what a promise is and we should not just allow people to do that as a rule. Now, the word reasonable is obviously a bit fraught because what does reasonable mean? This is when people start bringing up politics and, well, so-and-so would never go for that. Though, honestly, I would not characterize most politicians as reasonable people. The whole point of contractualism is not to develop a perfect society, but a society where no one disagrees with the rules on principle. So I don't have to love a rule, but if I can't find like a principled reason to oppose it, I'm not going to oppose it. And that is the beauty of contractualism. Uh, Essentially, you can think of it as everyone wants to pursue their own goals, but they want to do it in a way that is protective of their community. So going back to sort of my framework for ethical decision-making as software engineers, I like to think of each of these user groups as kind of a mini contractualist community. So you have to look at your, let's say, support folks and think, okay, are they going to disagree on principle with any of the decisions I've made? Am I causing them to, let's say, have to answer the same question over and over and over and keep them from answering other support tickets because we have built some flawed product? Would the people from my old health tech startup who are not being referred to services because they don't have Medicare or Medicaid, let's say, because they're completely uninsured, I feel like they would disagree with that on principle. And that would be a fair and reasonable disagreement. So that's why I chose contractualism is because ethics become a group activity. You become invested in your own society because you're going to be affected by things as well. I like this framework a lot because one of the things that it can feel like sometimes in some of these kind of conversations and just in our jobs in general, sometimes it can feel like you have a limited amount of agency in how these things play out. But with contractualism, what you're saying is there should be someone speaking for every group of people or that's going to be interacting with things that we are building. And that to me seems like a better end result. And I'm curious, like in practice, how does that work? Let's say I'm building a social network, right? (laughs) The answer is no. Do not build a social network. (laughs) 
And I decide to sell advertising. And in order to make that advertising more valuable to advertisers, I decide to collect data on users. What is a way for me to think about that in terms of how I should treat my interaction with those customers? In the traditional thinking about contractualism, everyone in the society gets to put forth their own considerations and they get to refute anyone else's considerations. In our version of techno-contractualism, which is a term I am coining and immediately deleting from my brain, we have to be the ones to propose and then refute the things we may or may not do on behalf of the people who are in the groups. We essentially have to anticipate what people would want and try to act in their best interests, even though we may not know them or be them. And so we're kind of having to do our best here, which is often not perfect. So let's break this down. It seems like the most interesting groups of users here would be the advertisers who want value for their money and the users using the social network who don't want their information bought and sold all over the internet. So this is one of the situations where contractualism becomes really interesting and also really difficult. How do you make both those groups happy with one decision? The beauty, I think, of contractualism is that that is not necessarily the goal. The goal is not to make every group happy, but to make decisions that neither group would disagree with on principle. What that means is you have to not give the advertisers more data than they need because there's no advertiser that's going to disagree on principle with not getting more user data than they need so that they can follow users around the internet and sell them more stuff. But there are going to be users who are going to disagree on principle with having their data bought and sold across the internet. And the argument here is always from social media companies, well, if you don't like our stuff, don't use it. But I would refer everyone to Kashmir Hill's wonderful piece from 2020. I think it's in the New York Times where she tried to use the internet for a week without five of the biggest tech companies and the internet became unusable for her. So large tech companies have essentially taken away that choice for consumers. And another piece I will recommend here is Corey Dr. Rose. I'm going to call it the end bleepification of big tech, <laughs> which is how on the media refers to it because they also cannot say that word on the radio. But it kind of talks about how we have taken away agency from users, essentially. If you sign up for a service, honestly, who really is reading the fine print? I'm not. And I know there's horrible stuff in that fine print. And I still don't read it because I'm not a lawyer. I can barely understand half of what it says. And so I feel like the tech companies have a responsibility not to do things that if a user could read the fine print, they would be really upset with. That's a responsibility that they can take and hold sacred, or it's one that they can eschew and ignore, which is what most tech companies honestly do right now. So I think that there's a few interesting things here. We've kind of talked a little bit about how contractualism says that no one could reject something on principle. I think the interesting thing here to me is how do we think about navigating that when someone could have different principles than us, right? Yeah. So let's talk for a second about one of my favorite topics, morals versus ethics. A lot of people use those words pretty interchangeably, and they are in some ways interchangeable and in some ways they're not. There are also kind of varying definitions about what is ethics, what is morals, what are the differences. The way I think about it, and I didn't even finish my bachelor's in philosophy, so please feel free to ignore me on this, but my sources are pretty good. 
morality is personal and ethics are societal. So I can have personal morals and I can have different societal ethics that maybe feel like they're in contradiction to those morals. So an example here is maybe I think personally, I or someone thinks that abortion is wrong, but thinks that from a societal perspective, having legal abortion is the ethical thing to do. And so you can kind of see where my personal morals and my societal ethics may seem to be in conflict, but actually can operate perfectly in concert. I can continue not having abortions for my whole life while understanding that from an ethical perspective, having the choice to have one is not up to me. And so I think this is where the term reasonable people comes in, where your personal principles might end up being different from your societal principles, and that's okay as long as they can operate in concert and really take into consideration what is best for the society. I like that split a lot of society versus individual, because I think one of the things that I've kind of thought about a little bit, and I didn't even take philosophy at all. I just watch pop culture philosophy videos on YouTube, but like provide individuals a space where we as people get to live our lives and we can live our lives in relative safety and where our needs are sort of taken care of a little bit, like not in a way where we're constantly under threat or fighting for our life every day of our lives for however long we live. Well, yes, especially in your abortion example, you're kind of saying that position leaves for the greatest amount of variance between individual choices while still providing a good rule for society. I don't know a better way to say that, but... No, it's true. And I think the reason that this conversation gets so fraught is just when you think about what it means to be a reasonable person. Look, I'm one of them. I have pretty strong ethics and pretty strong morals, and I get pretty wound up when people do not agree with me on them. And yet, when you're a part of society, you have to recognize that all you can do is control your own actions and make sure those actions conform with the fact that we do live in society and we do live in a group. And there are a lot of people in the political conversation who cannot live with that separation. There are a lot of people who think, well, this is what I believe. And if you don't believe that, then I don't want to deal with you at all. I would prefer to not engage in the slightest. And I think T.M. Scanlon, who wrote the book on contractualism, would agree with this, that those people do not count as, quote, reasonable people. They are not the people who get to refute rules in a society because you must be reasonable. You must be willing to refute on principle only. If you are not willing to do that, then ironically, you're not following the rules of the society creation rules. This is interesting because like when we're talking about on principle, the thing that keeps popping into my mind is Immanuel Kant and that a rule should be universalizable. So it's interesting because I think what you're saying is to reject something on principle means that you would have a principle that applies kind of universally. Yes, to a specific rule. And that is to say that one of the things that's nice about contractualism specifically is that every society can have different principles. Principle only needs to apply universally to that community. Now, obviously, in my tech application of this, we do kind of end up needing to apply universal principles because we are dealing with multiple different user groups. However, I think the better course of action is to apply principles per user group and then see where they conflict and then see which principle is more fundamental to that user's success in their life. 
and I don't mean to be all high and mighty about this, but a lot of times the software we're building can really, really deeply affect people's personal lives, their personal successes, failures, their mental health, their well-being. And so I do think that this is something that needs to be taken very seriously and thought of really deeply. And so thinking of these as like fundamental ethical principles does feel like the right thing to do. So what if someone is listening to this and they're like, okay, I agree with this. I think this sounds like a great framework. I don't know where to start. Or if they're thinking like, I'm one person in this big company and like, how can I possibly make any kind of impact on ethics at this company? What should people do? What should people do? What do we owe to each other? What can you do? Let's talk about it at different levels because this is a podcast for engineers. Engineers have all different levels of impact and seniority, and there are things that you can do at any level that will create impact. So the first thing to do, and I know that I'm going to get this question, so I'm going to head it off at the pass. Is there a purpose in doing any of this? Is there ethics under capitalism when there are CEOs just raking in the funds and they don't care about any of this? Look, if you want to go out and start the revolution, I will be right behind you. But most of us have to work to survive. Economic realities exist for almost everyone in the United States. We don't have a great social safety net. This is just something that we have to do. So the choice becomes not, is there ethics under capitalism? But given our current situation, can we make it better or should we give up? I don't think we should give up. I think we should always try to make it a little better. Harm reduction is an effective strategy. It is not perfect. We will fail a lot of the time, but the only other option is giving up. Again, unless you're going to start the revolution, in which case, shoot me an email. So what can you do? Let's say that you are a very senior software engineer with a lot of sway in your organization. This is the best position to be in. You are hard to replace. You have a lot of institutional knowledge. This is something that you should be doing anytime you are involved in scoping and designing a project, a feature, anything like that. You can be a leader here. You can show your organization what it looks like to make ethics a part of your product process. You can have a lot of influence and guide younger engineers in how they build things. This is one of those things where when senior engineers help younger engineers build good habits, this can be one of those habits that you influence. So that's the best position to be in. And here is my request to you, which is please use that power. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You are a very junior engineer. You are maybe an intern. You are maybe a boot camp grad like me. You feel like you don't know enough to make a stand. Ask questions. The beauty of being a junior person is that hopefully, hopefully, you are at an organization where you can ask a lot of questions and come at things with a beginner's mindset. So kind of treat this as a Socratic exercise. You can say things like, hmm, it seems like that feature might really exclude a lot of folks. Are there things that we should be thinking about to make it more inclusive? I call this character the benevolent moron. Maybe I shouldn't say that on the recording, giving away all my secrets. Really, you can look at this both from the perspective of trying to influence change and also trying to learn from your more experienced peers, while hopefully trying to get them to think about this from their perspective as well. And if you can get your more experienced peers to be thinking about this, they're going to be learning from you. And they're going to be able to give you more options to make things better because they have that experience. So really, this has the opportunity, if you're among open-minded folks, to be a real win-win. Now, let's say you are a, oh, I don't know, mid-level engineer at a huge corporation, and your organization has proposed a feature that you think is really wrong. Here is my recommendation. It has a few facets. 
Number one, come up with your like pie in the sky version. What would you like this to look like if you had all of your druthers? Would you not ship it at all? Are there modifications you could ship it with that would make it better? Secondly, come up with any technical concessions that you can. Okay, if we have to ship it, we should ensure that it ships with this or without this. Make it detailed, make it clear. And the more that you can articulate who is going to be impacted and how, the more likely your opinion is going to have sway. You know, if you can point out like, look, our users are going to have a terrible user experience because X, Y, or Z. Hopefully you're at the type of organization full of reasonable people where some product person is going to be like, "Mm, we really don't want our users having such a negative experience with our stuff. And let's say you can't get anyone to listen to you. This is when you come together with a bunch of other engineers and you find a trusted manager and you present it together and you say, look, we are all very concerned about this. None of us feel good about it. Here are our suggestions for improvement. It's going to be a lot harder for them to ignore a whole bunch of you than it is for them to ignore just one person. If something is extremely egregious and your company is hell-bent on shipping it anyway, this is when building relationships with people in your company is going to be really important. It can feel a little bit righteous to be like an ethical crusader, always going against things that people are, are suggesting for ethical reasons. And I'll be clear, I have absolutely been this person. But it is also really important to be cultivating relationships so that when something truly awful is about to happen, there are people you can go to who are going to back you up and believe you when you say like, this is where we should be drawing the line. And finally, the ultimate goal is to build this thinking into your process so that you don't have to be pushing back on these things at all. So I am working on a structured ethical framework that would be built into your software development process. Hopefully I will be publishing this in the next several months and hopefully Elise can help me share that with you when it is done. In the meantime, it's really important to have that thought process even without something super structured. Thinking about it again in the same way that you would performance, security, user experience, etc. And then finally, you're going to fail. Your company is going to ship something that you really don't feel good about. That's okay. The goal here is not perfection. The goal here is better. The goal here is harm reduction. The goal here is making sure that when you need it, you have the power to really push back on something that will be a very, very serious problem. Well, no, sorry. That's not the goal. The goal here is that you don't have to push back on things because your company doesn't propose them in the first place. But the side goal, the on the way there goal is that you are able to push back and that people are going to take you seriously because you are able to articulate what you're seeing. And that is the main thing that I see engineers not having the language for is just, I know this doesn't feel good and I can't tell you why. And that's why I like contractualism, because it enables you to separate out all the user groups, identify the impact separately, and then clarify it specifically. And that makes it a lot easier to say, hey, I think we should not ship this feature because vision impaired people are going to be impacted in this way. That's going to be taken a lot more seriously than, hey, the accessibility features on this are not up to snuff. So be able to speak specifically, be able to speak clearly and be able to speak to impact. And that's going to be a lot more successful, ultimately. Awesome. That sounds like a bunch of great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about contractualism and how we can all be more ethical at work. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great chatting and I look forward to speaking again soon. Me too. And I look forward to seeing the ethical framework. We will help spread the word when that comes out. We'll make sure our listeners can find it. 
This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. It was a pleasure talking with Katya. You can find her all over the internet at at K LinkedIn, the former site known as Twitter and Blue Sky are all included there. We're starting something new on the show. We'd love to hear from you. If you have comments about this episode, send an email to comments at the Ruby on Rails podcast.com. You can send text or record a comment using voice memos or Google Reader on your phone, and we'll respond to some of them in a future show. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound, for making us sound like professionals. And thank you for listening. You're a gem. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.